Good afternoon. I'm Christopher Preble, the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, thank you all for being here today, and thanks also to our conference staff here at Cato, and welcome to those of you who are watching online at cato.org and on our cameras here. Um, as far as most Americans are concerned, the Korean War ended six decades ago, sometimes referred to as the Forgotten War, uh, as it was sandwiched between World War II and Vietnam. Uh, Korean War veterans uh, living and deceased were honored with a memorial to their service in 1995, which is located, many of you know, between the Lincoln and Vietnam War memorials. But in many other respects, the war has never ended. Uh, hopes for reform and liberalization in North Korea have been frustrated. The people there suffer under crushing poverty and brutal political repression. Meanwhile, although the Republic of Korea has experienced incredible economic growth and political development in the last 60 years, the peninsula, the Korean peninsula, meaning families, friends, and relatives, remains divided. So on the 60th anniversary of the signing of the armistice, ending the Korean War, it is my honor to welcome here to the Cato Institute South Korea's ambassador to the United States to address the future of U.S.-Korean relations, including the U.S.-South Korean alliance, which also turns 60 this year. Uh, His Excellency An Ho Young was appointed ambassador of the Republic of Korea to the United States by President Park Jun-hee in May 2013 after a long and distinguished diplomatic career that has included official postings in India, Switzerland, France, and Belgium. Over the years, Ambassador Ahn has developed particular expertise in the law, trade, and economics. For example, he was Deputy Director General of the International Trade Law Division at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Director General of the Multilateral Trade Bureau, and Director General of the Economic Cooperation Bureau at the Ministry of Finance and Economy. In March 2008, Ambassador Ahn was appointed as Deputy Minister for Trade at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and he became the first Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade in February 2012. As I mentioned, he was appointed as Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary to the United States of America in May of 2013 and began his duties here last month in June. Ambassador Ahn graduated from Seoul National University with a degree in political science in the Department of International Relations. In 1979, he received his master's degree from the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in 1983. He has taught law and diplomacy at Korea University, and Ambassador Ahn is a recipient of the Order of Service Merit, Korea's top award for public officials. It's my distinct honor to welcome Ambassador Ahn here to the Cato Institute. Good afternoon, everybody. I hope everybody can can hear me well, right? Well, thank you so much for this uh, warm welcome, and then thank you so much for your kind introduction. Well, of course, Preble has has just said that I came to Washington, D.C. early in June, but in fact, I presented my credentials to President Obama yesterday. (laughs) So this is my first day as a full-title ambassador, and then... What a way to start my first day as an, as a, as an ambassador here, here at the Cato Institute. So thank you so much for helping me to start my first day uh, in, in such an appropriate manner. So thank you so much. Thank you. And then the issue we should be discussing this afternoon, of course, is a huge issue the relations between Korea and then the United States. And then as Preble has rightly pointed out, we are celebrating 60th anniversary of security alliance between Korea and then the United States. 
And at the same time, I looked at the title, and then we are supposed to discuss something about North Korean uh, issue as well. So it will be quite hectic, one and a half hours, as I, as I said. <laughs> but fortunately for me, the issue which has been given for me is only part of it, which is how I foresee the relations between Korea and then the United States. So the title is, Whether the Relations Between Korea and then the United States. And I have a very short answer for the question, which is, well, it will grow from strength to strength in the days to come. So that will be my answer to the question. And then I will have to elaborate. And then there will be hundreds of thousands of reasons why I think it will develop from strength to strength. But this, this afternoon, I was given 15 minutes. So let me just try to limit my answer to only to three points. My first point, it is because we share so many things between Korea and, and then the United States, common interests and common perspectives. And then when I say common interests and common perspectives, then some of you may remember the discussions we used to have in this town at the, at the beginning of 1990s. I used to work in Washington, D.C. at that time, early 1990s. And then I still remember what we used to discuss a lot at that time in Washington, D.C. It was about new international order. The Cold War was over, and then what order is going to take the place of uh, the Cold War which we had known at the time, up until that time. So you would remember all those discussions about, say, end of, uh, ideal, end of history, right? Or class of civilizations, et cetera, et cetera. And I think between end of history and class of civilizations, there was, well, of course, they seem to represent very different worldviews. But for me, there were certain, say, common threads between those, the, the two views. And then the common thread was, ideology was over. That was the common thread between end of uh, history and class of civilizations. But in my view, the jury is still out with respect to that uh, particular idea. I mean, ideology is over. But I'll not go into that. I know, I know it's a very dangerous area, so <laughs> we'll not, I will not go into that. But I think it will suffice to tell you why do I say we share so many common interests and perspectives between Korea and the, and the United States. I'm telling you out of my own personal experiences. And then Preble was telling you about all those quote-unquote diplomatic positions I have had so far. And then all those diplomatic covers provided with me, provide me with an opportunity to represent Korea at various international fora, United Nations, OECD, WTO, APEC, G20, you name it, right? And then one thing, I never failed to observe time and again was how similar the positions about two countries were, how similar the positions of, of our two countries are. And then just look around the world. With how many countries can you say the same thing? Somehow, in all of the fora, I had the privilege of representing Korea. That has, never been, that has been never otherwise than Korea and then the United States, somehow happening to find ourselves on the same position. So that's my first reason why I believe Korea-US relations, it will continue to develop from strength to strength. Common interests and common perspectives. And, it, and then it counts, whether we call it end of uh, history or whether we call it the classic civilizations, we are living in a very dangerous world, right? 
And then in the dangerous world, it helps, it helps us to have friends who share the same ideas, same interests, and same perspectives. So that's my first reason. My second reason is because of what Prevor has already said, which is the Security Alliance, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary of this year. Let's think about it. If something has lasted for 60 years, and then during those 60 years what happened, happened it has become strength, strong by every, every passing year. And then if that has happened, then there must be something in that, in that relationship. Some relationship do not go the same way. Some relationship can develop, taper, and then, and then, and then, and then filter out. But that was not the case with respect to Korea-US relationship, alliance relationship. It has developed over 60 years from strength to strength. And then it began with security relationship. Soon enough, there was a very important economic aspect to it. And then, uh, well, one example would be quite sufficient, which is the passing of Korea-US FTA last year. And then there are some, uh, say, uh, citizens in, in this town who are concerned. Maybe United States is not fully benefiting from Korea-US uh, Korea FTA, but I have uh, many good reasons why it has already started to benefit both Korea and then the United States. But at the same time, it will be another topic for another subject, so I will not go into that either. But at the same time, uh, it has started as a security relationship, and then there has been added very important economic aspect to it. And then now, I have to tell you, there is something we call global partnership. On so many important issues around the world, as I already told you, Korea and the United States, we are cooperating so closely. Uh, let, let's, let's talk about Iraq. Let's talk about Afghanistan. We are fighting literally shoulder to shoulder in those two countries. And then let's take any important international issue, international finance, international development, international trade, development assistance, climate change. Given any issue, just think about which country has more similar position than Korea. So we call it global partnership in Korea. And then when my president came to visit Washington, D.C. Uh, in May, then I came to find that in the United States, you also call it global partnership. So over the 60 years, what happened to this security alliance between Korea and the United States is it has developed from strength to strength and strength, expanding all those different issues and then adding them to the core of our security alliance. So that's the second reason why I'm so confident uh, about the future of uh, the alliance between Korea and then the United States. And then my third reason, because we are so interested in each other. And as I already told you, this is my third opportunity to serve in this great city. My first time was back in 1981, second time in 1990. And then this is my third opportunity to work for the Korean embassy in Washington, D.C. Back in 1990, there were a large number of invitations coming uh, uh, to my ambassador to, to come and address this kind of group. There were so many that my ambassador, he in fact outsourced some of those invitations <laughs> to me, right? And then at the time, I was not an ambassador. I was mere first secretary. But somehow, I had an opportunity to go out and then, and then speak with American audiences at the time, even as a first secretary. And then when I was winding up my uh, tour of three years, 
I was just recounting how many different occasions did I have to go and address American public as the way I'm doing today. After three years, I came to find I've done it no less than 30 times. So that was my experience in 1990, 1991, and 1992. Several years later, I was heading to Paris in 1996. And in 1996, I was charged to negotiate Korea's accession to the OECD, Organization Economic and Cooperation Development in Paris. And then, depending upon my experiences in Washington, D.C., I was just uh, looking forward to other opportunities, many opportunities, in fact, to discuss all these issues with citizens in Paris. So I spent one year, two years, and then three years. And then at the, at the end of three years, I, I tried to recount how many opportunities I had to speak, our bilat speak about bilateral relations between Korea and France, or Korea and Europe, between Korea and OECD with French citizens at the end of my uh, tour of three years of tour in, in, in Paris. I tried to recount, and then how many did I count? Is there any Frenchman here? <laughs> <laughs> My counting was zero. <clears throat> I mean, that's the interest they have in Paris, in France, in Europe, about Korea. And I told you, in United States, I was a first secretary, and then after three years, I recounted 30 such occasions. That, I think, is the difference of interest we have between Korea and then the United States on the one hand, and between Korea and Europe on the other hand. That's Korean interest in, uh, that's US interest in Korea, right? What about Korean interest in the United States? Today, we have 70,000 students studying in this country at graduate level as well as post, uh, I'm sorry, undergraduate level. By nationality, we are the third largest, which is the largest, the Chinese. Do we, do we have any Chinese uh, participants here? <laughs> we have 30, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 200,000. Second largest by nationality is India. Any Indian uh, participants? <laughs> no. 100,000 students coming from India. What is the population of uh, China and India? 1.3 billion each. What is the population of South Korea? 48 million. So in terms of population, China and India, they're 30 times larger than Korea. 30 times, right? But what about number of students? 200,000 from China, which is less than three times. 100,000 from India, which is less than 1.5 times. What does that tell you? Korean students are not interested in this country, United States of America. This is a great country, and, then I, and I think quite natural for them to be interested in this country. But they're willing to spend how much money? $50,000 each, 70,000 of them. Why are they willing to spend that much money for, for the study in this country? Because they believe in the future of this country, because they're interested in the United States. That, again, is just one small example of how high the interest uh, in, in the United States is in Korea. So let me try to sum up. 
Well, where shall our relationship will go in the coming 60 years and then 600 years? I think it will develop from strength to strength. Why? Because of all the three reasons I have just shared with you. But as I've, as I've already told you, it is just three among hundreds of thousands of reasons that I, that I can think of. But thank you so much. And then today, I cannot stay longer with you because of another appointment. But I know where you are. <laughs> that I will try to come back once again. And then among other issues, then I think we, we can discuss about Korea USFTA as well. Thank you so much for having me with you. Thank you very much, Ambassador Ahn. Uh, it's a great honor for you to be here. And, and we, will, we will take you up on your offer. We will, we, we will have you back. Um, so let me now uh, introduce our two other distinguished panelists. Uh, Scott Snyder, Scott A. Snyder, is a senior fellow for Korea Studies and director of the program on U.S.-Korea policy at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he had served as an adjunct fellow from 2008 to 2011. Uh, Snyder is also the co-editor of North Korea and Transi Transition, Politics, Economy, and Society, uh, the editor of Global Korea, South Korea's Contributions to International Security, uh, and the U.S.-South Korea Alliance, Meeting New Security Challenges. Prior to joining CFR, Snyder was a senior associate in the International Relations Program at the Asia Foundation, where he founded and directed the Center for U.S.-Korea Policy and served as the Asia, Asia Foundation's representative in Korea from 2000 to 2004. Scott has authored numerous other books and cha book chapters on aspects of Korean politics and foreign policy and Asian region regionalism. He received a BA from Rice University and an MA from Regional Studies East Asia Program at Harvard and was a Thomas G. Watson Fellow at Yonsei University in South Korea. Uh, our second speaker today, our third I should say, will be my friend and colleague Doug Bondow. He's a senior fellow here at Cato specializing in foreign policy and civil liberties. He worked as special assistant to President Ronald Reagan and editor of the political magazine Inquiry. He's the author of uh, several books and articles, including Tripwire, Korea, and U.S. Foreign Policy in a Changed World, which was published by Cato in 1996. He was co-author with Ted Galen Carpenter of The Korean Conundrum, America's Troubled Relations with North and South Korea, which was published by Paul Gray McMillan in 2004. And he's the co-editor also with Carpenter of the U.S.-South Korean Alliance, Time for a Change. He's written extensively and appears on uh, television and radio. Uh, he holds a G JD from Stanford University. So Scott, please. Uh, thank you very much, Chris, for the opportunity to be here and for the invitation to participate in this very timely uh, program uh, on the 60th anniversary of the uh, armistice. Uh, that ended the military aspect of the Korean uh, War. Uh, very difficult to follow the ambassador, uh, and it probably is even more difficult to be followed by Doug Bandau, uh, <laughs> who, um, uh, I, whose writings on Korea I have known and respected for a long time. Um, but I think that what I uh, might do is simply offer um, since we're on the cusp of the anniversary of the armistice, uh, and also since um, I just was reviewing um, a new book uh, called Brothers at War, which is a history of the Korean War, um, a couple, uh, several um, changes that I see uh, from the armistice to today. 
uh, that I think are relevant. And I just want to focus on four uh, major shifts that are different in the regional environment uh, at the time of the war compared to today. Uh, and the first one, uh, which is really, I think, the main focus uh, that uh, the ambassador just celebrated, but it's interesting to look back and see that it wasn't always the case, is that actually at the end of the war, at the time of the armistice, uh, the U.S.-Korea relationship was filled with mistrust uh, and suspicion. Uh, and in fact, Lee Sung-man refused to sign the armistice and tried to sabotage it uh, because he was worried uh, about uh, the end of the war. He still wanted to pursue unification. So one of the dirty secrets of the formation of the Mutual Defense Treaty um, you know, back in 1953 was actually that it was a device by which to restrain Lee Sung-man from moving forward. Uh, and, uh, you know, discussions have been made about the durability of the alliance. We're at 60 years. Uh, actually, there's a study in international relations of uh, alliance relationships uh, that shows that the average duration of an alliance over the course uh, of all alliances over the course of the past 200 years has actually only been 10 years. So we know that this alliance is different, but I think that the reason is because of what has happened. Uh, in South Korea, especially, uh, to change the relationship from one that was military-focused, focused on distrust, frankly, to one that we now celebrate as a vibrant and comprehensive uh, partnership uh, between uh, the United States and a Korea that has democratized and has uh, succeeded so vibrantly uh, economically. And so the scope and aperture of the alliance has just changed tremendously, and I think it's important to recognize that as we think about uh, the history of the relationship since the armistice. Um, I think the second uh, big change that we can see from 1953 to today in the relationships around the peninsula uh, is um, uh, actually uh, the role of uh, the Soviet Union, uh, or Russia, is greatly diminished today. Uh, and I would just note that. I don't really have a special observation related to it, but I think it's important to recognize that, you know, at this stage, Russia doesn't necessarily seem to be figuring in to uh, discussions of war and peace on the peninsula. Doesn't mean they won't come back. They have a history of being engaged. Uh, but at least for the time being, uh, that is a change. Uh, a third relationship where I think uh, it's very important to you know, take a look, is actually the relationship between China and South Korea has changed. Uh, and of course, over the course of the past 20 years, or it's been a 20-year relationship where China and South Korea um, have had a normal diplomatic relationship driven by mutual economic advantage. Uh, South Korea's uh, trade with China is almost a quarter of its overall trade. Uh, and that's really a dramatic change even from 20 years ago where the U.S. and Japan were South Korea's largest trading partners. But what I've found very interesting as I look back at the history of the South Korea-China relationship as it has developed is that what South Korea has always wanted from China, and really I think one of the reasons why they pursued normalization with China in the early 1990s, is that they really want China's strategic backing uh, in order to achieve stability and unification on the peninsula. And so I found it very interesting just watching Park Geun-hye visit uh, China uh, last month, 
uh, to uh, feel uh, that actually South Korea still hasn't got what it wants from the relationship, really, uh, in a strategic sense. Uh, China's still, um, in a way, playing hard to get with regards to the main South Korean strategic objective. And interestingly enough, the price of normalization back in the early 90s was that Korea cut its relationship with Taiwan in quite dramatic fashion. So uh, South Korea made an early strategic down payment on the relationship that actually has not been uh, uh, reciprocated. Uh, at least uh, that's one way of looking at it. Uh, and then the fourth relationship that I think has changed dramatically and that is clearly consequential is the US-China relationship. Uh, and this is really complicated because, of course, the US and China were Cold War adversaries, uh, but they ended up um, uh, normalizing relations with each other. And one of the interesting aspects of that is that it transitioned the ongoing conflict on the peninsula from uh, a source of enormous distrust between the US and China to, ironically, uh, a source of uh, stability uh, that is a part of the framework where the US and China uh, have a normal relationship. And what I mean by that is that um, um, uh, China still worries about US presence on the peninsula, but it's also true that um, uh, US bases have been a source of stability in the region that China, in particular, has benefited from uh, in tremendous ways. And of course, North Korea has been the main sticking point. Uh, everybody's been watching uh, China as an actor uh, in connection with the North Korean nuclear drama as it has been playing out. Uh, my perception is that um, China's policy is really tested toward North Korea every time North Korea conducts a nuclear test. And we've actually seen since 2006 uh, following each of North Korea's nuclear tests, a lot of variability uh, in China's attempts to kind of grapple with the challenge of restraining North Korea and keeping uh, the peninsula from becoming uh, a source of stability. Uh, recently, uh, especially post-Sunnylands, some administration officials were highlighting the peninsula as a source of potential cooperation, uh, especially post-third nuclear test. Uh, and there were some slight shifts in rhetoric in China, uh, kind of emphasizing denuclearization more. But I think it's important to recognize that that emphasis on North Korea's denuclearization is in the context of stability, not uh, as a priority that trumps uh, stability. Uh, and so that means that there are still limits on the potential for US-China cooperation that actually have their roots in the fact that the Korean War was fought and has not yet ended. And so I just want to close with three observations uh, regarding the enduring nature of the Korean War and its consequences. Uh, and the first one is the one that I just mentioned. The Korean War, in my view, uh, remains a sticking point uh, in the US-China relationship because uh, China continues to view the peninsula geostrategically um, as a, um, uh, as a, as really a, uh, an object in the broader competition for influence between the US and China. When they look at Korea, they think about the United States. And this is really because of the um, fact that the war hasn't ended, even though the relationship uh, has improved. Um, 
The second uh, point is that um, we're now in a situation where uh, the structure of the region uh, actually is one where the Korean Peninsula, a divided Korean Peninsula, ironically, uh, provides um, a certain kind of stability that it's not clear what it would look like if there were a unified Korea. And this is very sensitive. It's probably a little bit politically incorrect to even talk about it. But the fact of the matter uh, is that um, what China really worries about is if the peninsula unifies, which side will Korea tilt toward? Uh, and so the challenge of managing unification, uh, where we know that South Korea has already basically won the war but not received the prize, uh, is accompanied uh, by a situation where looking forward, all parties in the region hesitate because they don't know what the coming regime would look like. And it's all about the orientation of a future unified peninsula. Uh, and then the last observation that I would make is simply that North Korea needs to perpetuate the war in order to be able to sustain its survivability. And I think that that is... Um, Actually, in some ways, the Kore North Koreans have been calling attention to it recently. Uh, they blame the United States for uh, supposedly uh, deconstructing the armistice. They call for un <clears throat> unconditional high-level talks uh, with the United States uh, at the same time that they have all these conditions that the United States needs to meet uh, for those uh, talks to take place. Uh, and in a way, it just illustrates uh, that uh, the North Koreans need the confrontation. Uh, and the challenge, even 60 years on, is how do we find a way out from that? Uh, and um, uh, it remains, I think, a dilemma as long as North Korea is able to use the conflict as basically a uh, resource for uh, trying to perpetuate regime survival. So I want to stop there and uh, uh, move on. Thanks. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> Well, it's a pleasure to uh, appear at a panel with Ambassador Ahn and also with Scott. In fact, we were at Seoul together at the Asan Institute, and that's where I met the first met the ambassador. You know, these are great issues to go over <laughs> with the uh, dual anniversary of both the armistice as well as the alliance. We certainly are at a time of change and challenge uh, with the Korean Peninsula, and it's certainly worth reflecting back on 60 years ago, the world and Korea looked very, very different. You know, Scott mentioned four changes, and you think, you know, what South Korea looked like. In 1953, as the war ended, South Korea was a wreck, devastated, millions of dead people and people displaced, a country in crisis, a dictatorship, distrust for a relationship with America. Quite a time there. The Soviet Union was in full bloom. Stalin had died. Nevertheless, the evil empire still existed. And the threat of the Cold War, the question of any kind of a conflict being tied to global competition between the United States and the Soviet Union, every relationship, every alliance, every conflict was tainted by that. Of course, the People's Republic of China, then run by Mao Zedong, you know, a country that was going to be going through various stages of crises with the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, and more, at that point quite hostile to the United States. You know, we had fought a war, even if it was undeclared on both sides. You know, Taiwan and other conflicts tying into it, <laughs> a very ugly time looking at the peninsula. Japan uh, was basically recovering, but still in many ways a wreck after the war, quite dependent on the United States. 
In many ways, a lot of Americans looked at Korea as the important aspect to protect Japan, that uh, these relationships were very difficult for America at that time. And all of this was bound up in this global struggle. And what we've seen over the past 60 years is almost every aspect of this has changed. And you know, the world in which we created the alliance structure that we have today has been swept away. South Korea, of course, has raced past uh, North Korea in terms of economic performance as well as political freedom, is a major player on the international stage. It has an ambassador who goes to the OECD and to the WTO and other organizations where, China, where South Korea is an extraordinarily important player. Japan, of course, has also you know, grown second-ranking economic power until recently displaced by China. You know, a complete transformation then of those countries in Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, which has also been transformed with American relationships, uh, you know, allies such as uh, Australia and New Zealand, where countries like Vietnam, once in many ways an adversary of America, where another Cold War battle, battle was fought, a country that is actually much more pro-American than Chinese at this stage. You know, we see a transformation then in terms of the, the threat environment for the United States and its allies. At the same time, North Korea has gone down. One looks at it today in terms of its economic power, its economic status, going through mass famine, a half million people dead, an extraordinarily difficult time. At this point, basically a country with essentially no allies, that uh, you know, maintaining a relationship with China, but not a terribly friendly one at times, a difficult one, uh, one where the, the Chinese are certainly uh, very often angered by uh, what goes on in uh, Pyongyang where Russia has at least uh, increased its relationship some recently, but as Scott indicated, is not nearly the kind of player that it once was. Ironically, uh, we are kind of left with uh, Cuba and uh, North Korea together, as Colin Powell once said, I'm running out of enemies, I'm down to Fidel Castro and Kim Il-sung, and if you look at the, the recent stories about the ship and the question of the arms shipments, it does seem to be it's kind of Cuba and North Korea. If you're looking around the world for allies, I'd certainly want somebody beyond the other partner there. The U.S. is still dominant, but America is not so easily dominant anymore. Part of that's geopolitics, with the People's Republic of China posing much more of a regional challenge. And part of that is economic. The U.S. faces extraordinary budget pressures. And as we all know, the foreign policy is, you know, the military spending is the price of your foreign policy. If you want to defend lots of people, you have to have assets, you have to have force structure. It's much harder for the U.S. to do that. And looking in the years ahead, it's going to be much harder, I think, to make the case to the American people, we either have to cut Medicare or the defense budget, you decide who we subsidize. I think that's an issue where the foreign alliances are likely to take a beating. So the question then is what to do. Where should these relationships go, both on the South Korean side and the North Korean side? I think it's important to look at the US relationship with South Korea and recognize there's a huge aspect of the relationship that has nothing to do with military. I mean, the political relationship, economic interchange is extraordinarily important, cultural, as well as personal. I mean, the personal relationships are very, very strong. There are Korean-American churches, you know, the kind of the connections one finds, there are Koreatown in this community of Northern Virginia, as well as in other communities. So all of these relationships are extraordinarily important and will go on, whatever happens on the military relationship. Those, I think, will be enduring, and they will endure outside of whatever the US government and the South Korean government decide, and that's very important, because those relationships, I think, are fundamentally important, very important. Indeed, it's amazing the number of South Koreans whose children are actually American citizens. They were born in America when they were in grad school. They speak English. These, these ties, I think, are extraordinarily important. The question, though, what to do in terms of the military relationship, there I would argue that the US role is outmoded. The US role, at least, is the guarantor of security on the peninsula. It, no doubt there is deterrence of having American involved. 
But from an American standpoint, you know, the, that old tripwire that still exists ensures American involvement if something goes wrong. It also encourages behavior that strikes me as not necessarily being helpful to the uh, peninsula in terms of security, one of which is it discourages military spending by the South. They don't they have to rely on themselves nearly as much. It also encourages, I think, subsidies for the North, the whole sunshine policy, the question of Kaesong, does it make sense to send $90 million North every year in hard currency to a country that's building nuclear weapons, presumably with money that is transferable and fungible. Some of that money, one could argue, is going into that kind of a program. I would argue these kinds of behaviors are much more possible where one can rely on the United States. So the question is, does it make sense to maintain this relationship in the years ahead? And I would argue that actually we should look at rather phasing out that relationship. The good news for South Korea is it's well able to defend itself, certainly on conventional terms. The one should look in terms of the years ahead of reducing America's force deployments, reducing the military commitment, turning responsibility for South Korea's defense over to South Korea. There is something I would argue embarrassing about the fact that a country has to outsource the uh, command of its own armed forces during wartime to an ally, and indeed is put off trying to change that, and is asked again to put off into the future, making those changes. <laughs> then indeed, cooperation makes sense, both in a regional and global level. It strikes me the idea of a global partnership makes a lot of sense, but one should separate that from peninsular affairs. America has a lot of things it may want in terms of base access, joint training, joint maneuvers, intelligence cooperation, peacekeeping. It's not clear that from a South Korean standpoint, it makes sense to be dragged into America's conflicts like Afghanistan and Iraq, which make rather less sense, I would argue, from South Korea's standpoint. Indeed, I'm not sure how much sense they make from America's standpoint, but certainly from South Korea's standpoint, it's very hard to make an argument why South Korea should be involved in those wars. In terms of North Korea, I mean, no one can look at that regime and not recognize it's a very nasty place. If you look at human rights, look at conventional force deployments and threats, one looks at the nuclear program, there is very little there to like. Whoever is in charge, whether it's Kim Jong-un, whether it's a collective leadership, whether it's something else, it's very hard to know for certain what's going on in Pyongyang. It's one of the problems of having, we have very little insight there, unfortunately. We need to assume, I think, that that regime is going to persist. A lot of people have assumed for many years it was going to disappear. There were a lot of hopes at the end of the Cold War that it would, losing subsidies from its allies, losing support from its major communist partners. Nevertheless, just like Cuba, it has persisted and survived. At some point, it will be swept away, but we can't make policy based on any assumption on any time frame. It has to be dealt with. I think that it makes sense for the US to look at the issues of nuclear uh, kind of developments there separate from the issue of other uh, relations with North Korea. I think the challenge is I see no evidence to suggest that North Korea has the slightest interest in giving up nuclear weapons, none. They say they don't, they've spent 20 years trying to develop them, they've made it a priority. And indeed, I would argue that there are very good reasons why they want them, that is, it's nice defense deterrence, it allows for extortion, it makes them important, nobody else would pay attention to them otherwise, and there are probably domestic political reasons as well. It's very hard to know what that power structure looks like inside Pyongyang, but I imagine the military likes having a big expensive toy. It's not clear to me that uh, the po politicians and the civilians really want to try to take that away, especially at a time of some kind of leadership you know, transition. So if this is the case, there may be issues that they're willing to negotiate on, perhaps further plutonium production, you know, non-proliferation guarantees, conventional you know, uh, you know, de deployments. But as long as we fixate on nuclear weapons, my guess is we're not going to have any progress. 
that unless the North is willing to give up nuclear weapons, and I see no evidence of it, putting that in front of everything else means nothing else is going to move. We're going to be stuck within the current situation, which is periodic confrontation, threats, and who knows where all of that will lead. The danger, of course, is not I think the North wants war. The danger is that the North could make a mistake, the South could make a mistake, and we could find this conflict on the peninsula when, in fact, nobody wants it and it's not in anyone's interest. I think set it aside then and basically indicate that the prime, primary people who should res respond to that, countries are uh, Korea's neighbors. They are the ones that have the most at stake, and that includes China. That if China understands this is not just an American problem, but the nightmare is going to be shared, indeed China realizes that one outcome of this, of course, could be nuclear weapons spreading to America's allies. If America decided to disengage, it might create greater interest in Beijing to engage more on this issue and put more pressure on. The moment China views, I think, and I think Scott is right, stability is the overriding issue on the peninsula. If China at some point decides the nuclear issue undermines stability, it may change the calculus in Beijing. And I would suggest the US should be, indicate its willingness to sign a peace treaty with North Korea. It really makes no sense to have 60 years go by and have the war formally on. It'd be a benefit, I presume, to some degree to North Korea, but also, I think, to the People's Republic of China and the way it looks at the uh, relationship and looks at the potential threat of a united Korea allied with America. And also, I think it makes sense to indicate a willingness to have at least low-level diplomatic relations with uh, North Korea have some kind of a window into North Korean society, some kind of a channel for at least some formal discussions, some way to try to facilitate travel, try to have at least some sense of communication back and forth and see if it goes anywhere. North Korea may pocket those and basically do nothing. And, but if it does so, it's actually important evidence for China. That is, China has demanded and encouraged the US to engage more to do so and request Chinese backing. And if it, it goes nowhere with North Korea, it provides quite uh, real evidence, I think, to Beijing in terms of who is the problem here. You know, Korea has long been looked at as kind of the land of bad options. I mean, I think anyone of goodwill wants to see the regime in Pyongyang gone for human rights reasons, for security reasons, for economic, for any number of reasons. But it's there. It has to be dealt with. And uh, you know, nothing has changed over the you know, recent decades. What we know is that the world for South Korea has changed and changed for the good in terms of its position in the world, its abilities and its alliances. We know that in terms of North Korea, nothing that we've tried so far has worked, everything has failed. So it makes sense then to make a change in that policy as well. There's no guarantee that moving in a different direction would actually move us forward. Nevertheless, I think we know that if we don't change our current policy, nothing will change in terms of outcomes, which will leave us in the current unsatisfactory situation. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Doug and Scott. Uh, we now have time for questions from the audience. Uh, a couple rules here at the Cato Institute. Please wait for the microphone for the benefit of those watching online and so that everyone in the audience can hear you. Uh, please identify yourself and your affiliation. And uh, we do adhere to the Jeopardy rule here at the Cato Institute. That means phrase your question in the form of a question, please. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, down here in front, right here. Uh, Sydney Friedberg, Breaking Defense News. Uh, Mr. Bando mentioned the uh, combi Combined Forces Command, where the U.S. does indeed command uh, Korean forces on their own country's soil and their own country's defense in the event of war, and that Seoul, I think, already postponed the transfer to Korean control by three years and is now looking like it has at least chilly feet again. Uh, 
you know, the security relationship being at the core of the alliance, uh, why is Seoul so reluctant to take full responsibility? Uh, you know, is it indeed in our interest that they do so, uh, which is, you know, that's been our policy so far, but maybe we're wrong. Uh, and what should we actually do to uh, make them a little bit less nervous about it? Uh, I think that's mainly for, for Doug. Um, well, Scott may have comments yeah, on it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I suspect part of the issue is capabilities. I mean, you have to have a certain amount of you know, command and control capabilities if you want to have the command, you know, the combined command. And that is one issue that has been raised. Does South Korea have the technical capabilities to manage that? I'm sure a certain amount of it is simply confidence. That is, this is an extraordinary uh, you know, kind of responsibility in wartime. You want to get it right, especially if you're talking about any kind of a coalition effort. And, you know, the first uh, you know, Korean War, I mean, the U.S. ran it. I mean, so it's a question of really kind of changing that history. There may also be a sense in terms of emphasizing the ties with America, that this is an important aspect of the current relationship. It's been historic in terms of the U.S.-South Korean military relationship. This is a fairly significant change, and it does in many ways move South Korea looking much more in an independent role, and there may be those who are concerned about the kind of political implications of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, this recent report uh, that South Korea might be uh, examining this again is uh, premature. Uh, I think that uh, Chairman Dempsey yesterday in uh, his hearing, you know, indicated very clearly that, you know, this process involves uh, exercises to support the transition uh, that are designed to be conditions-based in terms of examining whether or not Korea is going to be ready uh, to do this. And so I think that it makes sense to let that process go forward and see if any red flags come up based on South Korea's actual capabilities rather than prejudging it. Uh, the reason why it's coming up is because it is a political issue uh, in Seoul. I think that it's a psychological issue to a certain extent. Uh, it's fair to look at how North Korea's capabilities may pose new challenges, especially on the nuclear side, and presumably U.S. and ROK planners are working very closely together to try to grapple uh, with that. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure I understand, um, uh, on the basis of what's actually happened so far, why this is a pressing issue at this moment. <clears throat> right here. Jim Lowen, independent scholar, author of Lies My Teacher Told Me. Uh, I have a question. Um, you were making almost light of um, that we're running out of enemies. We just have Cuba and, and North Korea left, uh, kind of. Iran is still around. But, um, and thinking about the fact that recently the Air Force uh, wasn't able to get rid of um, a plane it didn't want, uh, because of pressure, uh, lobbyist pressure and so on from, from defense contractors and, and that kind of thing. Um, your, uh, all three presentations today were all rational and presumed that we're a democracy and we do what's the, the best, uh, try to figure out what's the best for us and do it. But I'm wondering if that's not false or, or to put it another way, don't, aren't there forces within the United States, maybe let's say Lockheed Martin, et cetera, who need North Korea as an enemy and, and love it as an enemy and don't want to uh, uh, rapproche with Thank it? You. Thank you. 
Scott, do you want to leave? Do you have too many enemies or not enough, or it depends on who you ask? Yeah. Well, it, I would say in, in, in some respects, perhaps you might say that there's an interesting uh, correspondence between uh, number of enemies and resources available uh, for defense. Uh, you know, hopefully that would be the way that things might play out. You know, one interesting aspect, I think, of the South Korean situation right now is that they actually have postponed a procurement decision about uh, a new fighter that they want to get based on budget concerns, even despite the broader environment of threat that they supposedly feel. And so, you know, there are also, I think, pressures, uh, budget pressures and political pressures uh, on the uh, demand side uh, that uh, can have an impact. And I do think that those pressures are a uh, product of actually uh, uh, the fact that we've got two democracies, but obviously there are a lot of distortions and we could probably have a whole other session on campaign finance, but I'm not sure <laughs> we want to do that right now. I mean, public choice economics helps explain why concentrated interest groups have disproportionate impact over the diffuse private in public interest. No doubt there are interest groups, and you know, one could look at the military-industrial complex, that benefit from enemies out there because it creates an argument for their products being purchased. I'm not sure how many people in those industries actually hope to have enemies or try to create them. I do think they take advantage of the fact they exist. I mean, would they go lobby against, uh, you know, kind of a change in policy? I'm not sure. I do remember in the 1990-91 when the Iraq war, when Saddam Hussein invaded, it was before the war, we went to war, but after he invaded, there was a, uh, one of the conferences of um, military contractors was meeting and you know, somebody at that conference was quoted as saying, thank you, Saddam Hussein. So, I mean, there are people who, they recognize this. But I hate to be too cynical. I think it's much more opportunities are used when they arise, I'm not sure that people are going out there kind of nefariously trying to create them as somebody putting money into a secret bank account for Kim Jong-un in Switzerland saying, rev things up. We need a few more threats to nuke American cities. We just need a couple more. I'm skeptical of that, but I, I take your point that some of these decisions, there are a lot of things that go into these decisions, and some of them are not things that we would particularly like going into those decisions. I should take this as an opportunity, a word from our sponsor. Uh, Cato will be hosting a conference in October, October 25th, entitled Dangerous World Question Mark, exploring the different things that we are supposed to be frightened about. So check that out. It's on the Cato website, and uh, it may interest uh, some of you here today. Uh, over here on this side. Hi. Uh, Kenneth Rothschild, unaffiliated. Um, I'm asking this question without complete knowledge myself, and I'd be interested if you can help me. It seems to me that there are certain things that the United States does that creates a paranoia. If we go back like to the history of Iran, we can see reason for, for the Iranians to be very afraid of us. And, and Okay, now with North Korea, I, within the last year or so, saw a movie about America's attempt to go in and crush a supposedly communist effort in the, the 40s where, where the local people, the rural people, had to hide out in caves and that the overall of, uh, effect of this was uh, about 38,000 North Koreans were killed either by Americans or, or by um, 
Americans influencing others to do it. What do you know about this? In other words, I'm trying to get at the basis of North Korea's paranoia of us. Where, what, what, what are some of the reasons for that? Thank you. Well, well a lot goes into that. I mean, the, the, the comment of Henry Kissinger once was, I think, that even paranoids have enemies. Um, like, I mean, the North Korean regime is not a pleasant regime. So I, 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 don't, I don't think you can blame behavior that we see and what's done on human rights and things on America. And I mean, I, I tell South Koreans who are frustrated over division of the peninsula, the, the alternative to division of the peninsula would have been to be ruled by Kim Il-sung for 60 years, and that would not have been very pleasant, and the people I was talking to at that time would not have been able to be in the room talking to me. I mean, you know, it, it's, I mean, an extraordinary dictatorship on a totalitarian level that something, I mean, in terms of family classification, punishment of families goes three generations. There's a, there's a huge amount there. What I would say is that geopolitics matters. <clears throat> you know, coming out of World War II, North Korea was allied with the Soviet Union, and it was at war with the Republic of Korea that was allied with America. The original president of the ROK was not a particularly present, pleasant man. Ri Sing Man was not a great Democrat concerned about human rights. Um, he would have been happy to have marched north. Indeed, that's one reason we didn't arm him with heavy weapons, because he wanted to march north. So the, the, both countries were born in war and conflict on the peninsula as well as among their patrons. I mean, a, a cold war as opposed to a hot one, but still. So all of that is there. And if you're in the regime and you're focused on survival of the regime, you have reason to be concerned about a United States, which is quite willing to invade other countries and impose regime change. And I think that Libya, whatever one thinks of Libya on its own terms, that Libya was probably the crowning blow to convince the North Koreans it'd be really, really stupid to give up your nuclear weapons because, in fact, Muammar Gaddafi did. And he was kind of feted in Western capitals for a couple of years, and then we had an opportunity to get rid of him, and we promptly did. And North Korean media has noted the fact that that stupid fool, look what he did, we would never do that. So, I mean, it strikes me there are reasons for the North to decide that they really want nuclear weapons. And I think it goes beyond that. I mean, it's who would pay attention to this poor, starving country if they didn't wave nuclear weapons around? Why, why would anyone really care? Uh, and you know, the potential of extortion of money, I think they've decided the reform is very dangerous in terms of the regime to open up and what kind of happens with that. So it's much better if you can kind of get money from people. And that's the Sunshine Policy. It's K-Song. It's Foreign Aid. It's a lot of other things that nuclear weapons help. So I think there's a lot that goes into that. But if you look at how North Korea and South Korea were born, they were born in the midst of the Cold War with a conflict with each other, that certainly is not a very positive starting point for a relationship. And it continued throughout the Cold War, and they, they were tied to the you know, Maoist China, and to, uh, despite anger at times between them. And the Soviet Union, South Korea is tied with the Western alliance. Now, you, you have very real divisions there that persist to this day. Um, here. My name is Stephen Shore. I think most people would agree that compared to that the um, North Korea makes the old, former DDR look like an ideal libertarian state and <laughs> a showcase of prosperity. So my question is, could the ROK afford the political and economic costs of unification? Good question. You want to start? Oh, you want to take, you want to start yeah, that's a very, that's, I, it's a hard question to answer because I think that it really depends, it's, it's uh, path dependent. It depends on how unification happens. 
if you're talking about a sudden change, uh, then I think that that would present uh, uh, needs that would probably be beyond the Korean government's ability by itself to manage. And I think that it would be much more likely that it would become uh, an issue of discussion uh, at the international financial level. If you're talking about a gradual process, then I think that actually uh, South Korea and China uh, both would be likely to be uh, involved in ways that might make uh, financing of a gradual process of integration more uh, digestible. Uh, and in fact, I think that that is one area where South Korea and China have a convergence of interest uh, that affects the broader picture is that um, uh, even despite these threats uh, and the potential for discontinuity, South Korea and China both have an interest in a, a continuous process by which to try to gradually diminish uh, the threat and other problems related to North Korea. Many South Koreans looked at the German reunification experience with barely suppressed horror because they realized they were much poorer than West Germany. North Korea is much poorer than East Germany. Oh my goodness. And I mean, you visit North Korea, you see, I mean, lack of infrastructure, I mean, everything. Uh, and I think that's one explanation for the sunshine policy, which is you hope you can kind of push the North along and you're desperate for them to start reforming to close that gap. I think Scott is right that the path matters a lot. If, if you have time, there are ways to start kind of working towards the end. If North Korea, if there's an implosion, if the regime goes, if there's whatever, I mean, there won't be anything I mean, since South Korea can do. It's going to happen. And then I think South Korea will be very, I mean, it's in their interest to go to the international community and it will be in the interest of the international community to help them out because you will talk about extraordinary humanitarian distress, political, I mean, all sorts. I mean, the, the potential mess is, is huge. Uh, yes, Pam? I'm Nancy Glenn Hansen and have two roles that are relevant. I'm currently with the School for Ethics and Global Leadership in DuPont Circle. I'm also the widow of the great late Bob Hansen, who is executive director of the Korean War Veterans Memorial, had the honor of serving the presidentially commissioned board. My question has to do with the 21 nations when you walk the length of the memorial towards the American flag, freedom is not free. There are 21 nations which were part of the coalition. I heard you mention New Zealand and Australia. I grew up in the 50s and 60s and was fascinated with the potential of the United Nations and continue to have this naive devotion to good prevails in the long run. And I'm just wondering what, what hope we have for support from the nations that have shown great interest. And I'd also like to comment that living with the memorial experience over such a long period, I'm awestruck by the gratitude of the South Korean people for the American role. And it was a great joy in 1995 to see the dignity of the South Koreans strengthened as if they were now on the global playing field. Thank you for your question. Well, I think the Cold War created a, a unique 
moment in terms of this, I mean, Turkey provided troops. I mean, basically the U.S. went to a lot of its allies to try to you know, get support. Uh, most of those countries I don't think would be involved today. I mean, a country like Turkey wants to be a major player in the Middle East. I don't think it has much interest in terms of the Korean Peninsula. That There is a unique historical moment there. Uh, other countries in the region care a lot because obviously if something goes bad in the North Korean Peninsula, on the Korean Peninsula, it has regional implications. Uh, and I, it's interesting. I think if you look at uh, South Korea, you'll find a generational divide. The gratitude is the older generation. Younger people, I mean, among others, many of them remember uh, military dictatorships and they perceive America as supporting them. I mean, it's a complicated in terms of that relationship. Nevertheless, I do think there's a generational divide there. And I think it accounts for some of what strikes me as naivete regarding North Korea, which I think is declining with every crazy pronouncement that comes from Pyongyang. Nevertheless, there's a certain amount of that. They really aren't a threat. They're not so much of a problem. Uh, and I worry about that because it strikes me, well, they are. It's a question of whose problem and who should respond. But it, I would, you, know, you shouldn't look north and think these are, all, these are our blood brothers and they're our friends. There's something else going on. But I do think that's an issue for South Korea, that in terms of that generational, so you find gratitude of those who remember the war and focus on the war relationship. Others focus on different things and don't necessarily share that gratitude. Yeah, I think what I want to highlight is the uniqueness of the way that the UN became involved in this war uh, as a, what was called then a police action. Uh, and we actually had a collective a resolution uh, that supported a collective security response, in part because of the dispute. Uh, the Soviets had left uh, as a result of a dispute over whether mainland China and Mao should be recognized as part of the Security Council. So the political circumstances were unique. Uh, the example of the UN actually being involved in a collective security action as a war fight, uh, as the head of a war fight, is unique. Uh, and um, it, it really is an outlier as we think about uh, roles for the UN. And I also uh, uh, have a hard time imagining that it would ever be replicated uh, at this stage. Uh, but you know, the reason for the broad coalition was really because it was uh, initiated as a UN action. And I, I think it's important to go back to that as a source. Can I follow up on that, Scott? Because yes, it's true that a multilateral action that was officially sanctioned by an international body that was created for this purpose, and again, the unique circumstances are all relevant. Um, a, a, what about another kind of multilateral? Well, how do we how do we look at the six party talks? Do we look at that experience? Is that a positive? We, we, or, or not, and, and why would we interpret that as, as having not succeeded in the way that we might have hoped? Uh, does that tell us something about the limits of multilateral action that are not sanctioned by an international body? Um, you know, well, in terms of a negotiation track, it's hard to make a case because everything has failed, uh, essentially. <laughs> Uh, I think that maybe the uh, uh, the case that uh, you know a case that one can look at that would be interesting in an ad hoc context uh, might be proliferation security initiative. Okay. Right. Um, and I would say that there have been I, I see limits to what that particular initiative has. It's made some contributions, but there are also clear limits. And so what I think is interesting is that the main contributions of PSI ultimately got translated into, as far as I can see it, uh, implementation as related to obligations of member states to respond to uh, North Korean suspected shipments, like we just saw, uh, you know, that's now under a Security Council Panel of Experts umbrella. 
uh, in the back by the camera. Hi, I'm Brian Yee. I'm an undergrad at Tufts University, and I'm currently with the Korean Embassy. Um, you made the argument that Korea should be independent, uh, more militaristically independent. Um, does that include um, nuclear capabilities? And if so, how will that change the region? Well, I would hesitate telling South Korea that it should build nuclear weapons. On the other hand, does it make sense for the U.S. to be constantly entangled in a potential nuclear struggle? And if one's concerned about deterrence, what's the most effective deterrent, especially if you're looking not only at North Korea, but you're looking beyond at China? I think it deserves a real discussion. There's a presumption one should never want that. But I look at that and say, well, wait a minute. In certain ways, I would argue the current non-proliferation situation in, North, in Northeast Asia is kind of the equivalent of gun control, which is only the bad guys have guns. You know, North Korea, China, and Russia have nuclear weapons, but none of America's friends do. None of the democratic countries, none of the allied countries, so they all expect America to defend them. Well, you hope nothing goes wrong, but there is a question. The Chinese general actually raised it in terms of Taiwan. Are you prepared to risk Los Angeles for Taipei? Well, I'm not sure I want to. I like Los Angeles. I spent a lot of time there. My uh, family, uh, you know, has, uh, we have a home out in San Diego that my sister and I own, had been my parents' home. I'm not sure I want to risk Los Angeles. So I think it's a discussion that we really should have. I also think it's an important potential poker chip, which is how do you share the nightmare with China that a nuclear North Korea is not a good thing? And I think the Chinese have made a very rational judgment here. They want stability. They're very worried about refugee flows. They don't want implosion. They don't want conflict. They have a lot of economic uh, assets and kind of investments in North Korea. They really don't want a united Korea allied with America, with US troops. And um, you know, the current situation requires America to constantly come calling, you know, please help us, please, 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 get the North Koreans to show up. They may not agree to anything, but please get them to come at least to the table. Well, how do you change that? One change would be, you know, we're kind of tired of this, and it's not clear that we want to be around all the time for a problem that's frankly a Northeast Asian problem, much more than our problem. And, you know, if our allies decide they want to build nukes in response, who are we to tell them no? Because what I want Beijing to hear is the words nuclear weapons and uh, Tokyo in the same sentence. And I think that might cause them to react slightly differently. Now, we don't have to carry forward, but we should at least think in these terms as opposed to assume that the current status quo is the best way to run it, because I'm very nervous at the notion of nuclear umbrellas that assume nothing will ever go wrong and that we should be entangled with countries. I mean, the North Koreans luckily don't have the capability, but they're threatening to nuke Austin, Texas. I mean, we joke that's because Ted Carpenter, our former our colleague, <laughs> lives there. He moved there. You know, I mean, maybe that's why. I don't know why else do you want to nuke Austin, Texas. But you know, we're entangled in these affairs in a way that I'm not sure we want to be. So I'd say it's an, it should be an open discussion. That I think this is an issue that we should open up. I, you know, the current policy, we limit the, the range of, of uh, missiles for the ROK. Well, we don't want to upset the Chinese. Well, my reaction is, well, upset them. Of course they should be upset. And if South Korea wants to have a deterrent capability against China, let them. Why on earth are we worried about upsetting China? What are they doing to stop the North Koreans? Not a lot, as far as I can tell. Upset them. It's about time we upset them. Um, can I, I, I just going to make a couple of points on this. One, I think with regard to the conventional balance on the peninsula, ultimately it really is going to be a south-north game. 
but I also have to say that I have a slightly different view from Doug on, uh, really? you know, yeah, well, <laughs> uh, you know, especially on, I, I think that, um, you know, this is, we've, we've actually kind of seen this in terms of, well, let the uh, allies loose to, you know, and let the nuclear, nuclear dominoes fall where they may. Um, you know, there are changes in, in the region, but actually, you know, one of the th things that's very complicated in the U.S.-China relationship is that uh, on the one hand, um, there is an appreciation of the fact that our presence has given stability to the region. At the same time, uh, there's not, uh, you know, there is this pre-existing confrontation. And I think that as we think about managing China's rise, um, well, I would prefer a little, I would prefer more subtlety uh, and uh, more careful and nuanced management of an approach that might also serve to uh, address some of the challenges that could emerge as a result of China's rise uh, as we think about um, the U.S. presence in the region. The, it is generally true that, I, I agree with you, the Chinese value stability, but how do we account for the possibility that uh, of a moral hazard, that countries that are sheltered under the American security umbrella behave in a, in a sometimes irresponsible way, in a way that they would not if they were more responsible for their own, for their own security or the risks in, uh, involved in their, in their behavior? Um, I, I understand the, the notion about – I'm concerned that people uh, – people in this town who seem to understand moral hazard in most other contexts, they don't seem to understand it very well when it comes to alliances. <clears throat> Yes, ma'am. Yang Lo Yun, Foundation for Empowerment. Uh, if I understand it correctly, when you're talking about as a potential um, solution to the implosion, sudden implosion of North Korea, you're talking about the um, involvement of the IFIs. I'm wondering whether uh, IFIs can be now involved in the uh, development, especially economic and social development of North Korea to really reduce the gap between South Korea and North Korea so that that can lead to more gradual um, the, the reunification. We have seen the China's experience. China has been introduced to the international community starting from the Asian Development Bank and the World Bank and everything. So really it has uh, propelled China to be the current yeah. China. What do you think the uh, U.S. would be interested, whether U.S. would be interested in this kind of idea and whether this idea can be quite realistic and effective? Thank you. Um, well, I absolutely support the idea of a more active dialogue between the IFIs and North Korea. Uh, and I actually don't see the United States as the major block on beginning that kind of dialogue. I see North Korea as the block. Frankly, that's the one area where I see, or one of the areas where I see a convergence of interest is in the need to establish more effective conditions of economic governance uh, in North Korea. Uh, it's really necessary for North Korea to be integrated uh, into the region. I'm very skeptical of the efficacy of uh, development aid. I think the critical question of development is domestic economic policies. So if you don't have your domestic economic policies at least semi-rational, 
it doesn't matter how much money comes in. It doesn't matter if it's the World Bank or Asian Development Bank or IMF or whoever. It just bilateral. I, I just I think it'll be wasted. It'll be stolen. It'll be misused. So I don't see anything in North Korea at the moment that has suggested that they are capable of using those kinds of funds well. <clears throat> and the second issue, and, it's, and it even applies to humanitarian aid, even though I mean that's much harder. If they're busy building nuclear weapons, money's fungible. I mean the question is. Do you want to go in with a major aid program? How do you how do you contain that? And you know, and the problem is not even if you can just say, well, we only use it over here. Well, if it's something they would have done anyway to allow, freeze up resources. So you really walk into a huge problem. Are you indirectly subsidizing behavior that we don't like? So I have I think one has to be really careful and one shouldn't view, I mean, un unless there's a change of attitude and policy in Pyongyang, I just don't see much that the IFIs can do at this stage. All right, we have time for one more question. Uh, over here on the side. <clears throat> uh, hi, Michael Casey from the Mansfield Foundation an undergrad at University of Michigan. I just had uh, one respond to Mr. Brandon asked a question that, you know, you, you characterize our relationship as somehow dangerously entangling. You know, but uh, I don't really see it that way. You know, I'm reading some of your literature here in that you characterize, you know, North Korea as an irrelevant strategic backwater and that today Seoul faces painful humiliation at best and destructive war at worst because of decisions made by the US. You know, but looking to statements made by the ambassador and I, you know, people in the state or DOD that I think you'd be hard pressed to find people that share those similar characterizations. That somehow removing troops who you call thousands of nuclear hostages would somehow drastically change the strategic calculus on the peninsula. You know, they're a form of tripwire. It's a form of pre-commitment that we're incurring obligations as a form of deterrence. Just how it worked in Europe, it's worked on the Korean Peninsula. And that somehow changing the relationship would, you know, alter the behavior of China. If you look at the history of North Korea and China, they, they hate each other. You know, China is not this, you know, panacea to the problems here that, you know, they really don't have that much influence. And so you talked about how things have changed, you know, since, you know, the alliance began in 1953. So I think if you which want to ask, like, what's so bad about the status quo, given that the current relationship has yielded such great benefits for stability in the region, for the relationship between the United States and Korea? So what is so urgent that we need to drastically change things now? Thank you. Well, you use the word tripwire. That's entangling. I mean, the notion there's a tripwire there to try to ensure our involvement in war if something goes wrong, that's entangling. The question is, you know, when should the U.S. take up the risk of war? And when should it you spend the money and create the military force necessary and risk the troops and willingness to go to war? I mean, if you're going to make commitments, you've got to have the force structure behind you. The worst thing you can do is to have lots of commitments and not have force structure ready to back that up. The question is, <coughs> do you do that irrespective of international circumstance? Why should one support, underwrite, and subsidize prosperous and populous countries that have gained the ability to defend themselves? Surely it's not a surprise that South Koreans who otherwise would have to spend more in the military are pleased to have a superpower defend them. If I was in their position, I would say, please, please, please come. Absolutely. It makes absolute sense, I think, from a South Korean standpoint. That doesn't mean it makes sense from an American standpoint. Now, if I was in the Pentagon and my budget depends on having a large military, I'm probably happy to have stuff strewn all over the world. And it's my job to think worst case so why would people at the Pentagon be kind of thinking it's a great idea to shrink things? I mean, I don't get good pushback from the Pentagon in terms of kind of good 
kind of policy arguments in my view. I mean, it's understandable why a state, I mean, it's a lot more fun to kind of try to run the world than the notion of maybe you should step back at some point. And it's not just South Korea. All of our allies expect this. You know, the, we have to keep a, a military or Marine ex expeditionary force on Okinawa. Well, that's probably more for Korea maybe than Japan, but the Japanese government certainly wants it there. You know, they want us to defend them in terms of other ways. They want us to back them up on uh, the Navy, the Filipinos. You know, they want to get into a push and shove relationship with China. They don't even have a Navy that works. Well, who are they expecting to bail them out? Of course, it's us. You know, the flagship of the Filipino Navy is an American cast-off that we gave them. You know, it's a great deal for them to have America behind them. It's not clear that's in our interest. I have a friend in uh, Australia. He comes over periodically. We have dinner, and his comment to me was, well, everything you say makes sense, but I'm really glad it's not policy because we'd have to spend 6% of our GDP on the military. I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, from their standpoint, it's a good deal. Same thing for Europe. The question is why? I mean, you could make an argument that we would promote stability around the world if we promised and guaranteed the security of every country. And in every country, we'll put a garrison. So if any other country attacks that country, we'll respond. Maybe that would suppress war. It'd be pretty expensive and pretty risky. I don't think that's the American imperative. I think the American imperative is to be at peace, to take care of our own people. There are moments where you have to go to war, and I think we had to go to war in 1953 for a variety, or 1950 for a number of reasons. I think we made the right decision then. I think the alliance made sense in the early years of the Cold War, because if we weren't there, South Korea would have been overrun. But there's a point where circumstances change, so your force structure, your alliance structure, your commitment should change as well. We've turned, I would argue, what is supposed to be a means to an end into an end. It's the same with NATO. It's, uh, we, we do that with the Japan relationship. These things must remain forever. We'll come up with new duties for them. We can never change them, but I would argue circumstances have changed dramatically, and especially when America's broke. And we have you know, $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities for Social Security and Medicare. If you put all the unfunded liabilities together, it's over $200 trillion. Well, how are we going to pay for all this stuff? You know, wealthy allies should take care of themselves where they can. We should do the big stuff they can't do. I would argue South Korea is capable of defending itself. Understanding that Scott might disagree, <laughs> I'd like to let Doug close on that point. But, uh, but, I, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. out of deference to our guest, okay. yeah. uh, Scott, you, you get the final word here. Okay, well, and I'm, I'm going to be... Um, I actually don't think that Doug and I necessarily disagreed that much. Uh, the main issue is that I see it as a question of how we manage our relationships rather than whether we should be managing the relationships. Uh, and I do think that uh, as we have entered an environment of fiscal constraint, a lot of Doug's arguments about the need to make strategic choices are more compelling precisely because we have to think about the financial implications. And so, you know, his argument has been a kind of voice in the wilderness on the alliance relationship, uh, but I don't find it uh, uh, completely without merit that an argument like that be out there. All right, well, thank you all very much. Thank you for attending. Um, if I may, and please join me in uh, thanking our uh, panelists.